Amen. Well, good morning to you again. We've been working through Genesis 1 through 11, the series uh, entitled In the Beginning. And today we are going to learn about Noah's Ark. All right, kiddos? Noah's Ark today. Now, we know it's not just a children's story, Noah's Ark, but, you know, in my research this week, studying this passage out, trying to find some great examples, a good visual for you to be able to really see this as we go through this passage today, I found this very clear picture I think it'd be really helpful. Can we go ahead and put that on the screen there? There it is. <laughs> Noah's Ark. I can see it better back there than I can up there. Yeah, those animals look pretty happy, don't they? Uh, the one thing that may not be historically accurate there, <laughs> as if there's only one, there's no people on that ark. That's a problem. But those animals, they look really happy, don't they? And if you're wondering why those animals look so happy in the midst of such a terrible time, Realize that about a week and a half before, in their mailbox, those animals found this. I don't know if you can read that. Can you read that? On the top says, you're invited. All right, you're invited. So they, they got called by God to jump up in that ark. And so they were very, very happy. All right. Uh, the simple idea of fun animals on a big boat has led to the creation of many Noah's Ark-related organizations. Think about this. People name their daycares the Noah's Ark Daycare. This is all over the place. There are several daycares named this. Also, the Noah's Ark Preschool. Okay? How about this? Noah's Ark Family and Community Centers. And then, beyond that, who could miss Noah's Ark Adventure Camp? And then, if that's not enough for you, you could go and enjoy yourself at the Noah's Ark Four Seasons Resort. Perhaps the most ironic, the Noah's Ark water park. <laughs> because of all the things Noah's Ark makes us think of, reminds us of, it probably shouldn't be, hey, let's go play in the water. <laughs> well, it turns out, the pictures and the paintings that we all have seen in so many church nurseries and in our children's bedrooms as they were growing up, uh, they're not quite as accurate as we might hope. And the true story, the narrative of Noah and the flood, and it's a narrative, not a tale. You know the difference between those two things? A narrative is a story that happened. It's not just a tale that we tell to learn things. This narrative of Noah and the flood is not just a cute children's story, and and we know that. Uh, But the narrative of the flood teaches us much about who we are and who God is. Remember that the book of Genesis, meaning beginnings, is a book that was given initially to the children of Israel to teach them who their God is and who they are. And so it's right for us, as we read through this book, to interpret it in the same way. We need to learn about who we are. We need to learn about who God is. And it also points us forward. It points us to our ark of safety. Safety that we must have from the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. So let's, as a church, let's look to his word today. We're going to be in Genesis 6, starting off, as we seek to understand and grow in our love for him and seek to glorify him in our lives. Let's pray together before we begin to read. Father, we do thank you that your word is true. 
And Lord, we thank you that every bit of it is important and meaningful and that we can learn from it. God, I pray that you would help us by your spirit and treating the word as it's written, as it's meant to be understood, that we would learn what we ought to learn from it, that would be changed by it today to be conformed into the image of Christ, that we might glorify you as a result. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first portion of our time today as we read here is going to be spent talking about the ark itself, the animals, and the flood. So we're going to jump around from from passage to passage in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and some of 9, okay? So first we're going to look at Genesis 6, 14 through 16. We're talking about the ark here first. He said to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Okay, so we'd think, okay, the ark is made of gopher wood. What's that? And the answer is, we don't know. Okay? How's that? That's a great start to the message, right? We don't know. No, but the Hebrew there actually sounds like gopher. So when you're thinking gopher wood, don't think of the little furry animals. It has nothing to do with them. Okay? The Hebrew word actually sounds like gopher. So, uh, reality is, this may very well be a tree or some type of wood that just doesn't exist today, that we don't have today. There's a flood coming that's going to destroy everything in a little bit here. So... This may be a tree that we just don't have. It could even refer to a manner in which to cut the wood out so that it would be made in such a way. We don't know for sure, okay? But he's going to make it out of it. He said, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And the word pitch there means smear, like a, a caulk or a seal, which is a great idea if you don't want water getting in, right? So that's the instruction he gives to Noah. Uh, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 and its height, 30 cubits. Now, a cubit would, would be approximately 18 inches or a little more, okay? 18 inches or more. Uh, so a 300 cubit long would be about 450 to as much as, it's estimated, 510 feet long. 450 to 510. Uh, that's about a football field and a half. So if you're trying to visualize this, drop it into our high school stadium here or the CMU stadium. It hits on the football field on one end zone line, and it goes out to the other ends, and then out another half of football field. That's the length of it, okay? Uh, 50 feet wide would be 75 to 85 feet wide. So if you drop it in the same football field, you're going to be from one sideline to about the logo in the middle of the field. So can you see it? That's the length and the width. Now, 30 cubits high would be 45 to 50-ish feet high. So each deck could have been as much as 15 feet high. The lower deck, the middle deck, the upper deck. Okay? He says in verse 16, Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it lower, second, and third decks. Now notice here, these are rectangular dimensions. Okay, so something could be said of that. Uh, Now, when we look at modern boats today, they do still give us length by width by height dimensions. So it doesn't mean it has to be totally rectangular in its shape. It doesn't necessarily have to be all straight edges. Okay, but it could have been. Not, not a cube. Okay? Couldn't have been a cube. Number one, because the dimensions don't make a cube. <laughs> Would you agree with that? That's not too hard to figure out. But also, if you put a cube in water, what's it going to do? It's going to be all over the place. That, they would have been a little sick by the end of that, wouldn't they? 
Uh, now, this floated quite well, actually. The dimensions given here are the optimal dimensions you would want to build a boat in to be very, very much so seaworthy, okay? Uh, but as far as the shape of it would be, it could have been rounded more at the bottom, like a ship or a boat. Uh, this picture that will be posted up here is what Answers in Genesis uh, rendered it as, if you can see that. If you can't, go to Answers in Genesis and look at it, and they'll show you lots and lots and lots and lots of pictures, okay? Or, like that one looks like it's rounded at the bottom, so it had to be supported up so it wouldn't tilt from one side to another, which makes me ask the question, just out of curiosity, when it landed after the flood was over, how did it not... Okay? Now maybe God could put it by a mountainside, and that would be fine. But just a question. Just speculating, okay? Or... The other possible shape could have been more rectangular and a flat-bottomed type boat, uh, more like a barge. Either one of those options would have been uh, great. It would have floated just fine. And if anything, actually, the, the barge shape would have given more space on the inside uh, for all them animals. Okay? So, just some ideas and options as you visualize what's happening here with the ark. Now, let's look at the animals. Jump down to verse 19 in chapter 6. It says, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Uh, Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind and two of every sort shall come into you. That language there, shall come into you. Noah did not have to go out and set a ton of light traps to get all the animals and to coax them to come into the ark. God brought them in, and Noah got them in to the ark, okay? And he says to keep them alive. They shall come into you to keep them alive. And verse 21 says, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So we have here of these animals, a male and a female of every kind. Every kind. Not every species, necessarily. Every kind. Okay? Remember that after creation, the animals were only able to procreate after their kind. Okay? So, for instance, this is probably an easy example for us, uh, there was no need to have 200 different dog breeds on the ark, all of them male and female. We didn't need a male and female cocker spaniel and a male and female golden retriever and a, you get the idea? Unnecessary. Okay? Unnecessary. Proof? All of the mutts that we have in the world today, right? All of the different combinations of breeds that we have today. Uh, so there was an estimated 1,400. I don't know how or why I check out answers in Genesis, okay? There was an estimated 1,400 different kinds of, uh, different kinds in existence. So those kinds that could procreate uh, with each other. So um, at the time of the flood, 1,400. So a couple thousand animals. If you think about that, 1,400 kinds, all of them at least a male and female, and then the clean animals, the clean birds, there were seven couples. So 14 of them. Two of everything or 14 of some. Does that make sense? It says that in chapter 7, verse two and three. Take with you seven pairs, there's fourteen, of all clean animals. The male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, uh, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So these clean animals, what are they? Um, The best that we could tell would be from the book of Leviticus that defines what clean animals are, and they were animals that it would say they have a cloven hoof. 
Okay, so that is like cattle, deer, antelope, gazelles, goats, sheep. Those kind of animals, okay? Those would be considered clean. So 14 of them, and some of every clean animal realize this afterwards, uh, they were used up as sacrifices. Remember, after Noah got off the boat and all of his. That's in chapter 8, verse 20. So there were 14 that got on. Not all of them got off for very long, okay? There, there was another purpose for some of those animals. So that's the boat. That's the ark. That's the animals. Now let's talk about the flood. Go back to Genesis 6, verse 17. We're going to read a lot of passages here, uh, snippets here and there that describe uh, the extent and the duration of the flood. Verse 17 says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy, what's the word there? All flesh in which the breath of life, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So this is all flesh in which is the breath of life. So that means that all life that breathes air. So who is not in that list then? Animals that don't breathe air, right? He said under the heaven. He didn't say under the sea, right? So the fish were good to go. They were in the water, but everything above the waters needed to be on the boat, a couple of them, right? And it says all of it, everyone. So is there an exception here? Uh, One of the things that is often speculated is that the the flood in the Bible was regional. Okay, we're going to see as we go through here some different examples and reasons why it would not make sense to think it a regional flood. Um, this is the first one. All and everything will perish. Okay, chapter 7, verse 4. This is God telling Noah when the flood's going to start. Verse 4 says, In seven days, okay, from the point that God's speaking to Noah here, in seven days I will send rain on the earth, and this is the duration of the rain, 40 days and 40 nights. Jump down to verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, that'll come up later, so remember second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. What did you hear there? Was there water just coming down, or what else did you hear? There's water coming up. Water coming down and water coming up. Uh, Water's not just coming from above. There are waters that were under the ground, fountains that are bursting up. So what happens when waters of that nature and that magnitude burst up out of the ground? What kinds of things would you expect to see, or to hear, or to feel? Okay, so we're thinking about earthquakes We're thinking about types of explosions. We're thinking about massive erosion. It would be necessitated, wouldn't it? It would naturally follow if that much water burst up out of the ground that there'd be all kinds of modifications and things being torn apart, new bodies of water being formed and every other kinds of thing that you could expect, and all kinds of rock layers being pounded down upon. Okay, and what does that also result in? With all of that pressure. We think of fossilization. Okay, here, here's this statement about fossilization. Uh, the organism that is fossilized must be buried quickly. 
quickly. For this to happen, the organism normally must die in abnormal conditions. Okay, this is not from Answers in Genesis, by the way, just so we know there, okay? I didn't stay inside our, our buddies within our uh, circles of thinking. This is, this is a generic idea of fossilization, okay? They must die in abnormal conditions, such as in a flood, hmm, a volcano eruption, or an earthquake, hmm. Otherwise, it is near impossible for an animal to be preserved. The organism must be kept from normal decay. Okay? So when your pet passes on, and you go in the backyard, and you bury, bury him in the backyard and put a little, a little wooden cross out there, okay? I'm not saying you have to do that. That's just being silly. What happens to that animal? Four thousand years later, do people uh, stumble upon with their brushes a dog with a leash still intact and a bone falling out of its mouth and a tail wagging just so? Is that what they'll find, or will they find dirt? So, how in the world do we have fossils all over the world, all over the world? and they're in the middle of doing all kinds of activities, how in the world would that possibly be? Well, let's use their own explanation. Abnormal conditions such as in a flood. Bingo. There it is. Look down at verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. Realize Noah didn't build his boat on water. His boat was on land, and the waters came, and it bore up the ark. That's when it started to float, right? And it rose above the earth. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all, there's that word again, all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So the very, very, very tallest mountain in all the earth at the time of the flood had another 22 feet 6 inches at least above that mountain peak. Does that make sense? Okay. Now this is not going to be amazingly scientific, but when you pour water in a bucket with sand in it and with peaks and valleys in that bucket, what does the top of the water look like? Does it mirror what's underneath, or does it flatten out at the top? Because water displaces, and water fills all the cracks and crevices, right? And it goes down and fills the volume. So if water is 22 feet, 6 inches at least, above the highest mountain on the face of the earth, what is it also covering? Everything else. That's right. Everything else. What is the extent of the flood? The entire earth. The entire earth is covered. This cannot be regional. This was a worldwide flood. Now, the duration. Go down to verse 24, and we're going to drive right into chapter 8 with this time of reading here. 724. And the waters prevail on the earth 150 days. So this is about five months. But God remembered Noah 
and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, okay, remember, this all started in the second, right? The seventh month, five months later, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And this is northeastern Turkey. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So from the time Noah gets into the ark and all this starts, eight months have passed, and if he were to look out the window, he could start to see the tops of mountains in the horizon. Okay? Jump down to verse 13. In the 601st year, the 601st year, in the first month, so now this is 11 months later from the beginning of this, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Dry. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Now what should he do then? What would you think? You've been in that ark for 11 months with thousands of animals. And you look and behold, that's a good word in the Bible, right? Behold, the land was dry. What are you about to do? (laughs) Get out of the boat. His legs would have been a little wobbly then, you think? Getting off of that boat. You would think that's what you would want to do, but it says, verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. wasn't time yet. What was he waiting for? And this was two more months, okay? So we're going nearly to 13 months now. Verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Noah waits these extra two months, now over a year in the ark. He's waiting to hear from God. He wasn't going anywhere until God gave the go-ahead. Which, if you think about it, he'd seen some things lately that would have been great indicators to him. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. Would you agree with that? Pretty good idea for him to wait. Now, let's talk about the people. Let's talk about the people. Let's remember first the people of the day. Let's kind of dip back into last week a little bit. Chapter 6, verse 5. This was the condition of, of the people of the earth. Remember this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Remember, every intention, only evil continually. And God chose to blot out, to judge nearly all of mankind, but not all. Remember? And then Jesus spoke to this time. Remember, we looked at Matthew 24 last week. It says, For as, we're, as it were in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. Eat, drink, and be merry. They were giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. They were living in that rampant wickedness 
oblivious to the coming of judgment. That was the condition of the people of the earth. Now go down to chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For, uh, that word again, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now go up to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word means grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when we think of grace, uh, often the term, the definition for that is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Okay? So was Noah the most amazing, most spiritual guy ever before God intervened? It did say there that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Could it be that Noah's just like us and he's a sinner too? Absolutely, that's the case. Okay, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And it says his sons there, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember Enoch? Remember the story of Enoch? Enoch lived this many years, and that, and that genealogy was this person lived this many years, he had a son, this is what his son's name, he lived this many more years, and he died. That was the formula for that genealogy. But Enoch's was different. Enoch started the same way. Enoch lived this many years, and he had a son, this was his name. Remember Methuselah's name, the meaning of it, to shoot forth? It was a name of judgment, kind of like the shooting forth of the waters from the deep. And something happened to Enoch right about that time. And he changed. And he walked with God. And then he was not because God took him. Remember that? It seems like something happened to Noah too. Because Noah's just like you and me. He's just like everybody else on the earth. He was born in sin. Something happened. And Noah started walking with God. And he was blameless, it says, in his generation. When compared to everybody else that God saw, Noah stood out. There was something about him that was different. And it wasn't like God said, Oh, look at that. What do you know? <laughs> right? God did a work of grace in Noah's life, and it changed him. It changed him. This is what happened with Noah. And, and, and here's the fruit of that. Noah did this, verse 22. He built the ark, and he did all that God commanded him. To say that he walked with God means that he agreed with God, that he submitted to God. So Noah was a sinner who needed God's grace, and then when he received it, he was counted, it says, as righteous. doesn't mean he was perfect. It means he was counted. He was discerned to be. He was judged as righteous. And he became a changed man, being counted blameless in the context of his generation as he sought to please the Lord. Question. What does this sound like? And I'd say to you, if you're a Christian today, it ought to sound like your testimony. It sounds like our life. Because we too were people who were wicked and in need of grace. Then God did something. And we received grace. And our lives were changed. And we started walking with him. And we would be counted as righteous and blameless in our generation. Not because we're perfect, but because we agree with God and we change and we grow. Does that make sense? Noah is a picture of what we are to be today. 
Now, what about the rest of the people on the ark? Verse 7 of chapter 7. Remember that Noah and his sons, that's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and his wife, Mrs. Noah, we never get to know her name, and his son's wives with him. With who? With Noah. Notice in this text, the only person who seems to have found favor and walked with God was Noah. And on account of Noah and his household, these eight people enter into the ark. And they escaped the waters of the flood. Now, there's more to learn about people. Go to chapter 9. This is after the flood, okay? You guys are doing well following along. There's a lot of reading and information to gather today. Thank you for your attention. Chapter 9, verse 1. It says that God blessed Noah. This is after the flood. They're coming out of the ark. And his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. It sounds familiar, right? Adam and Eve were told that. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. More of that to come next week. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they're delivered. And it's a good thing because there were only eight of them left. So if those animals came off the ark and turned around and said, hmm, that looks tasty, that would have been a problem, right? God made it so that that wouldn't happen. Okay, there's protection for the people to go out, and that enabled them to be able to go out and obey the Lord and multiply and fill the earth. They're not going to. We'll see that next week. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So this is when man goes from being vegetarian to being omnivores. That's when it happened. Okay, And God said that he blessed that. God gives us all of these things to eat, so enjoy your meals today with thanksgiving. Verse 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. Okay? We don't eat like animals. <laughs> we don't eat like animals. Sometimes we joke around and we talk about people that are just scarfing it down, boys that are growing up and they can't stop eating. We say, stop eating like an animal! Uh, but we don't eat like animals in that we don't immediately tear into those things at the moment of the kill. Make sense? What do we do with them? This is Michigan, right? we got a bunch of hunters. You drain the blood. We drain the blood. That's what it means. Okay, We remember in that that life is sacred and God-given. Verse 5 then. Another tidbit for us today. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay? This is the passage. This is a little bit of a side from the rest of what we're doing today, but this is the passage where the argument that the death penalty or the capital punishment is not right because thou shalt not kill, what does God say in this passage? Thou shalt not kill, and if you do, then the penalty is death, and it's to be meted out by, given by, your fellow man. Okay, that's what this passage is saying. This is where capital punishment begins, and this was God's idea and God's command. Okay? Even in the New Testament, Romans 13, it says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And here's an instance of it in Genesis 9. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It says later on in verse 4, uh, the government or the man, he is God's servant for you, 
for good. If you do wrong, be afraid. <laughs> if you're doing good, you're good. If you're doing wrong, it says be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, so that all has its start here in Genesis 9. And then finally, verse 7, God reiterates, Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply it. Now as we take this whole thing, this big picture, even the aspect of murder and the idea of capital punishment, we have some sad conclusions at the end of the flood. What was it like in the garden before the fall? It's perfect. No sin. Okay, now, what would we hope for? God sees the corruption of all mankind on the earth. He shows grace to Noah, changes his life. Noah follows God. His household goes into the ark with him. The floods come and wipe out all life under the heavens. The waters abate, everything dries up, and mankind gets off of the boat. All mankind, all eight of them, get off of the ark. And what would we hope to find? We'd hope for the garden again, right? But what does God say in these things? What is God sharing in these instructions? Commands were in the garden, right? They were commands that were given in the garden, but they were followed joyfully, not begrudgingly, because there was no sin. So commands are still necessary, but God also has to say here that judgments are coming. Judgments must be prescribed because the commands will be violated. God promises it. It wasn't his doing, but he knows it's coming because man is still sinful man. Even murder will be present. Death is still present. The flood didn't get rid of our condition. It didn't get rid of our condition. Uh, Therefore, judgment is still deserved. Judgment is still to be expected. Grace and forgiveness are still needed. Uh, Without them, without God's intervention, man is still hopeless. None of that has changed. Uh, the flood, the flood, it wiped out the present corruption at the time, but it didn't eliminate it. When those eight people walked off the ark, in a sense, sin re-entered the world through those eight people. Okay? So then it's a good thing that we learned these things about the Lord. We've learned about the ark, we've learned about the animals, we've learned about the flood, we've learned about the condition of man. Now let's learn about our God. We know this from this passage. Amongst many other things, but I think these two things condense it for us. We know that the Lord judges sinners, and we know that the Lord saves sinners. Both of these things are true. Uh, First, as far as judging sinners goes, we have other facts of God judging sinners. They're numerous, like the curse, uh, the idea of death in itself. You will not surely die, and yet there it is, and it's all over the place, and we too are in in that. Uh, The flood is obviously God's judgment. And then amongst many other things... We know the promise of hell. The promise of hell for all those who reject him. We know that the Lord judges sinners. Now, if a person would struggle with the idea of that, struggling with the idea of God being able to justify his judgment, God being able to justify his judgment, if I were to say it's not right for God to judge so harshly, here's some thoughts. Number one, I am not holy and righteous. So compared to me, nobody's really that bad. Does that make sense? I don't want to be judged. And so therefore, I can't see why I would want anybody else to be judged because they're not really much worse than me. 
Do you see how that's a horizontal view? And the vertical is nowhere to be found in that. Number two, I did not create anything. I didn't create anything. I was created by another. So this is a question of authority. Number three, if I say God is unjust to judge, if I say that God is unjust to judge, then what I am also saying, what's the opposite of that? That I am able to judge. And whom? God. I'm able to judge God. Be careful with that. It's foolish. It's hypocritical. If I say it is wrong for God to judge, then I am saying it is right for me to judge. And I can judge God. Bad idea. And number three here, as far as God being a judge of sinners, uh, let's remember this. As we think vertically and think about who he is, the Lord is the only one who can say, as he does in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then in the next chapter, Exodus 34, he says this. He says that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And then here's the part that's really tricky. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? In the same sentence there it says, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see a conflict there? How does that work out? How is that possible? When we think about who are the guilty? Who isn't? Right? So the question is then, as we learn about who God is, how can God be both just and a justifier? And the reason is, God is not just one who judges sinners. God also saves sinners. God saves sinners. Remember that Christ is the just given for the unjust. The innocent substituted in the sinner's place. Taking our guilt on himself at the cross. Why are we able to be counted as righteous? And the reason is because Christ was counted as guilty. That's why. Why must we accept the idea of the judgment of God? Why do we have to be so careful with us deciding to be judges of God? Because the just judgment of God, our salvation depends on that. You realize that? If God, if there's no judgment, then why did Christ have to die? If there's no Christ, there's no cross. If there's no cross, there's no sacrifice. And if there's no sacrifice, there's no salvation. And we are left hopeless. We are left helpless without it. So Christ, and here's how we tie this with Genesis 6 through 9. Christ is our ark of safety. You get that? Christ is our ark. It's Him. The ark that Noah built, that he was enclosed and protected by through that terrible judgment of God, it points us to Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is verse 18 through 21. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, me and you, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, then made alive, but made alive in the spirit. And this part's interesting, says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. At the death of Christ, Christ proclaims victory over Satan and all of his fallen angels that we had just read about in the last couple of weeks. Victories won. It says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Remember, there the water was judgment. In the ark, brought safely through the judgment of God. Then verse 21 says, baptism. Remember, that word means to be immersed. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. You think baptism saves us? If you get baptized, you get saved? No, no, no. Baptism just means to be immersed, right? And Peter he's being a smart dude, he's led by the Spirit here, he says, not as a a removal of dirt from the body. Peter says here, in case you think I'm talking about getting dunked in water, I'm not talking about that. He says this, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is the ark. And when you hear the truth of the gospel, you repent of your sin and put all of your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are found to be in Christ, baptized. Noah was in the ark, and now you, Christian, are in Christ. And therefore able to be saved from judgment. Christ passed through the judgment on the cross. And when you were placed in him, you were safely passed through the judgment, just as Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives passed through the judgment in the ark. That's the picture. That's what we see. That's why we can be sure that we are saved from the penalty of our sin. God judges sinners. And God saves sinners. He is the one and true, holy, all-righteous, all-powerful God. And we are his people. By his mercy, by his grace, through his love, having passed through the judgment safely in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your grace. We thank you for providing for us the ark of safety in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that today as we think about the truths of this passage and we think about uh, your perfect will in giving your son for us in our place, I pray that our response would be uh, to be in awe of you. As we learn more about who you are and what you've done and what you're doing, God, that we, like Noah would walk humbly with you. That we would seek to do all that you've commanded. That we would glory in you and praise your name. That we would be changed. God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace given to us. May we be a people who rejoice because we've been able to pass through this in Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.